welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. <laughs> I got it. Don't worry, 28 minutes. Right. I, I am uh, Jimmy D. I'm, I'm a recovering uh, sexaholic and a recovering alcoholic and grateful to be sober today from a hopeless state of mind and body. Um, first of all, I want to thank all of you, the... Uh, the Canadian contingent, the California contingent who put this all together. Uh, it is, I'm telling you, you know, the speakers have taken my breath away and it's hard to talk without breath. But I'll, I'll make it. I usually have the ability to try and, and, uh, and speak. So I'll, I'll do that. Uh, you know, there was so much said here. I, I have to tell you, I last night in my perfectionism, I, um, I typed up my presentation. I actually typed it up. And it's, uh, I think it's seven and a half pages. And then it started out this morning with Amjed. And then uh, my sponsors shared Bill. And then um, uh, and then Hal and then Dennis. And all of a sudden, the spirit whispered to me. My spirit whispered to me and said, throw your prepared speech away. Throw it away. And all of a sudden, it got... All of the speakers were filling me with, uh, with so many thoughts, so many, many thoughts. So Nagos, Marcus, and Dennis have that, uh, the crozier. It's like a hook, a shepherd's hook. So if I start to go completely off the walls and over time, pull me off the screen, okay? Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. What a wonderful meeting. I, I, I can't tell you. I, I used to have a fellow working for me years ago. And he was a well-educated guy, uh, and he used to say this, Jimmy, it just gets betterer and betterer. And that's what it's been like with the speakers here today. It's betterer and betterer. You know, I, I mentioned that I'm a, a recovered alcoholic. I don't generally do that in an essay, but I'm doing it today because my uh, both my alcoholism and my recovery uh, on both in, in both programs in this beautiful design for living are inextricably related. I, I can't, I can't speak about my sex addiction without talking about my alcoholism. And I can't, I can't talk about my recovery in one without talking about the recovery in another and another. But I also have to say that um, my, um, my recovery from alcoholism, which is long term, I'm one of those elders. I've been a bleeding deacon and elder statesman. I've been all of that. Uh, that can also, that showed itself to be a bit detrimental when I came back to SA. And I came back to SA 20 months ago. I've been sober since September the uh, the 26th, 2019, this time. But I'll I'll get to that. I I, I will get to that. One of the things that I learned in my uh, recovery as a member of uh, AA was when we speak to... uh, to try and cover it like this, you know, what was it like, what happened, and what what is it like today? So I'm going to try to do that, 
The difficulty is when I look back over what it was like, especially in terms of sex addiction, my sexual addiction has probably been with me for 60, more than 60 years, maybe 62, 63 years. My recovery from sexual addiction, the actual, I believe, surrendered recovery, which seems to be what's going on in me today, uh, has only been for 20 months. So, so what it was like on the sex addiction side or the sexual lust addiction side is very, very long. But what is it like today in terms of my recovery from sex addiction, sex and lust addiction is very short. Doesn't matter. I'm not here to try and impress you. And as a matter of fact, I think last night when I was when I was putting this talk together and and I only I did that because I was talking to my sponsor and he said he had, hadn't done anything. He was going to do something last night. And I thought, well, I'll, I will type up my entire talk. How's that? And I'll have it here. And uh, and I realized what that is. That's my perfectionism. That's my um, that that driver in me that uh, that says, uh, you know, I want to I want to find out what do you think of me? So, so like I used to do that in AA for years. I never once prepared a talk in AA. I would let the spirit lead me. And earlier on, it was a lot of this. There was a lot of, you know, we carry this message. The message I was carrying was the Jimmy D message all about me. So it was a lot of this. And I didn't recognize it at all until I came into essay, it was a tremendous obsession and compulsion with lusting after me. I wanted to be lusted after because on the inside, I felt the problem. The problem is my autobiography in the white book, page 204. It's the, it is my problem. I always felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. So when I spoke and told my story in that other 12-step program, which I've done thousands and thousands of times. Early on, it was a lot of this. <clears throat> Hi, well, um, enough about me. I'm getting a little sick and tired of talking about myself. What do you guys think about me? So there was a lot of that in there, you know, a lot of that. And, I, and I, I'm glad today that listening to the, the beautiful, wonderful shares and, and realizing that the Spirit of God spoke through you folks, um, That's not what it's about. Um, let me tell you how my gift of desperation came. It's been very, very, it's an evolutionary gift of desperation. In terms of recovery from sex addiction. <clears throat> in, um, let me tell you what, where, what was going on in my life. I, uh, early on, I, I'm a child of the 40s. I'm 78 years old now, but I'm a child of the 40s. I was born in 1943. And early on, especially in the 40s, it was very popular in families, at least in my neighborhood. If a child had anything that ailed them, the medicinal uh, practice, usually uh, recommended by a physician, a family physician, or by uh, my mother, mother, my mother particularly, was, be, was to have uh, a medicinal practice that involved a part of my anatomy that began to... Uh, get confused with pleasure and pain. It was like a sort of a, a connection with it. And, uh, and as my mother was hurting me by doing what she was doing, she was also rubbing my back or rubbing my neck and telling me that everything is okay. So somewhere along the line, in my psychosexual development, things got twisted. 
and I began to develop a fetish for a particular body part. And that became, oh man, a part of my, as, as, as Amjad mentioned in the beginning, it became part of my soul cancer. It was really a soul cancer. And that, I pursued that to the gates of hell. I pursued that connection with that body, body part. Um, I am heterosexual as well. That is my predilection, but I pursued it and crossed gender lines in that area. Didn't matter. Didn't make any difference because, you know, I was, uh, I think I was addicted very young, very, very young. What is addiction? What does that mean? Well, there was a guy that was popular in the 19, uh, 1990s or so. I, I really respected this man. He was a great therapist. He was a, uh, a personality TV performer. He used to give lectures on PBS, public service television. His name was John Bradshaw. Some of you may remember him. He was a great writer. And uh, I remember him one day saying that he defined addiction. I didn't know what it meant. He defined it. And he went like this. He said, addiction is an obsessive and compulsive relationship with any substance, any thought process, or any behavior that has potentially negative or life-damaging consequences associated with it. And we engage in it anyway, despite the harm that we're doing to ourselves or others. So looking at that definition, and he goes like this, the one common factor in all addictions is mood alteration. It makes us feel okay. It makes us feel good or not feel bad. By that measure, I was addicted to sexual lust very early on, very early on. My introduction to alcohol came at the age of 15 or 16, but I was already practicing lustful sexual behavior. I didn't, I didn't know too much about, um, uh, I didn't understand orgasm until I was maybe 16. And that came by, by me having the courage one day to walk up to a, a guy who was older than me. It was like a gang. I came from Brooklyn, uh, New York. That's why I, I sort of like, I've developed such an attachment to Joe Brooklyn, one of our buddies. But I came from Brooklyn too. And, um, and so I used to hang around with a gang of folks. And one of the guys in the gang used to talk about orgasm, but in the, the street term, you know, the vernacular of that. And I didn't know what he was talking about. The only thing I knew to come out of that body part of me was urine. I didn't know what he was talking about. So I had the courage to ask him one day, what does that word mean? What are you, what are you guys talking about? They were 17 and I was 15. What are you talking about? And then he ridiculed me a little bit and he said, you know, don't you do that? You don't, uh, you don't know how to do that. I said, no, 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 I don't. I don't. I'll never forget his name. Bobby R. No, Bobby, I, I don't know how to do that. What, what do you do? And he said, well, you go home and you get in, uh, you went sort of a quiet space when uh, nobody's around, you know, and, uh, and you keep uh, touching that thing, you know, and pulling on it and doing all other kinds of stuff. And then see what happens. It was like pulling on my forearm. It meant nothing to me. I nothing. I didn't know what the hell the guy was talking about until I did know what he was talking about. And when I did, explosive charges went off in my brain. Off in my brain. And I wanted that forever. I thought I had been, I thought I just had entered the highest of heavens. St. Paul talks about it. I thought I had entered that. I wanted that from then on. 
So right off the bat, as I define, as I use Bradshaw's addiction, I was addicted to that. I remember going to, I went to a, uh, a parochial school, a parochial high school, and I was a sophomore in the school. And I had never seen hardcore pornography in my life. I'm talking 1958. Never, ever saw it. And then one of the guys in the crowd had something. I'll never forget him either. Uh, he had uh, what they call French cards. They were triple X-rated pornographic cards. And he started passing them around to us. I think I was 14 then. No, 14 or 15. So I, he handed me a card. I thought, I thought my brain would come right out of my socks. I, I didn't know what in God's name I was looking at. But I, I have to tell you, that's 63 years ago that I saw that. I still can pull it up in my memory if I want to, if I don't surrender that. That's what happens with lust for a guy like me. It is so toxic, it embeds itself into the engrams and the programmatic structures within my brain. There's no doubt. So I have no doubt that I'm, you know, when I share with you that I am, I am a sexaholic. That is the case. Uh, you know, in the preface of the white book, it says, this program is those people who want to stop their sexually destructive thinking and behavior. Well, I didn't get, I didn't understand the first part of that for a long, long time. So, so what happened? Uh, it was in 1969, 51 years ago in 10 months, I guess, uh, my alcoholism had progressed uh, not quite as far as my sexual addiction, but my sexual addiction was hidden. The drinking was more obvious. And I was, uh, I was harming people, including my wife, uh, people in the community. I was a dangerous man. I was also armed. I was a law enforcement officer in a big city. So uh, I was a dangerous guy, and uh, I was getting in trouble because what, of what alcohol was doing. Uh, I was engaging in all kinds of lustful behavior and acting out. I was uh, cheating on my wife. I was compulsively masturbating. By this time, I was a porn addict, although in 1969, you couldn't get it so readily. Thank God. I think if there was an Internet in 1969, I wouldn't be here today. Probably would have been. Probably would have hung myself. Would have committed suicide. So uh, I was... I was uh, sending away for hardcore pornography to the Scandinavian countries. And being a very bright guy, I was a very intelligent, clever, I was clever. I went to the post office to get a post office box because naturally I couldn't have it sent at home. My wife wouldn't approve of that. She was a very religious girl, very wonderful Catholic, beautiful young lady. And I don't think she would have approved of the kind of stuff that I wanted to drink of with my eyes. So I got a post office box. And when I went into the postal service, the guy showed me the applications that were about 12 inches thick. And he said, okay, yeah, fill it out. Uh, but you're going on the bottom. You know, I don't know when a post office box is going to be available. So I told him I was a, a police officer. And uh, it was important that I have this because we're going to use this in, in terms of various criminal operations. So the guy said, oh, my goodness, here, gave me the application. He said, just put your name, your shield number, and your command. 
on here as your identifier and I'll put you right on the top. Well, I started getting mail. I got the post office box immediately and I'm getting pawn through the mail from Denmark, Scandinavia and all the other places. How, you know, the Netherlands and whatever. And it was the, it was the triple X rated stuff in 1969. Uh, it didn't take too long for the U.S. Postal Service to, uh, to stop one of my mails because it was illegal back then. You couldn't transport pornography through the mail internationally. You weren't allowed to do that. It might have been even local. I don't remember. But it, what I was doing was, a, was criminal. So they stopped it. They interviewed me. And I bullcrapped my way around it, and I said we were using it on a sting operation. I was in what they called the youth squad, very interesting assignment, which primary mission was to help young people to develop some sense of emotional, emotional maturity and, and character building. What, a, what an oxymoron there for me. So anyway, uh, I lied to the guy, and... Uh, and then one of the other things that I was doing with that post office box, I was, I had a subscription in a in a, mag, a pornographic newspaper, from the from Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And I used to put ads in there about myself, and I started sending naked pictures of myself through the mail to people. Straight, gay, didn't matter. As somebody mentioned earlier today, I by that time I was pansexual, didn't matter. Gender didn't matter because of my fetish. So um, somehow or other, some gay man got my, one of my photographs of me and one of my drawings. I used to be pretty good at art, too. I was an illustrator. So I drew it, gave it away, traded it, all that stuff, right in the problem. And I drew some pretty graphic stuff, I guess, and sent that to this person. I don't even know who it was. But he uh, went to the police department and reported receiving this stuff in the mail from some pervert. <laughs> Pervert. There was no such thing as sexual addiction back in 1969. Nobody knew what that was. So that pervert went under investigation by the Internal Affairs Bureau of the, uh, the uh, major city police department I was in. I didn't know that. Ironically, God was involved in this and stepped in. He's always been my protector. You know, in Psalm 91, by the way, when I came into recovery uh, in AA, um, I was an agnostic. Who would have thought that a few years down the road I'd be remembering Psalms and uh, being deeply involved in a spiritual a faith tradition, you know, as people have mentioned today. Deeply committed. Born again, as they say. Well, Bill W. says we were reborn. Well, I was reborn in a faith tradition. But none of that took away my sexual lust. None of it. Just like many of you guys have shared today. So... Uh, was I with, where, where was I with that? I was jumping around with that. Um, oh, I, 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 anyway, I got intervened upon for my alcoholism. There was a family intervention. My wife was feeding information to my father and brother, both of whom were members of that same police department. My father was a retired detective. My brother was a, a high-ranking uh, officer. And they did a family intervention on me. They didn't call it, they didn't call it that then either. That was July 30th, 1969. They did a family intervention and sent me over for, uh, to their employee assistance program, which they really didn't have. They called it a counseling unit. <clears throat> Pardon my voice. I have allergies. 
and, uh, and I, I'm getting raspy here. So, so anyway, I um, I wind up getting into going into treatment for alcoholism. No one asked me any questions at all about the sexual behavior, and I was free. I was home free. There was no desperation. All right, so you know, intervened upon. I'm going to go into treatment for alcoholism, and I did. The third week in, in rehab, I was laying down, taking a nap, and, two, and, and somebody knocked on my door and said, uh, the guy who runs this place likes, wants to talk to you, Jim. And a fellow named Jimmy Cusack. He's now passed away. So he uh, wants to talk to you. So I go downstairs, and usually you didn't want to talk to Jimmy because he would look right through your head and tell you you were full of crap. But I go down there, and I was full of crap at that point. It was all... It was exciting hearing all you guys tell these stories. I was 26 years old. I walk into the room with Jimmy and there's two guys in suits. And in my department, you don't want to see people in suits that you don't know. And they presented an indictment to me about my behavior. And the first thought when in my mind is, it's now exposed to 32,000 members of this organization. All of the sexual addiction stuff. That's what I was being presented with right there. All of the sexual stuff that was hidden. And now everybody knew. My family knew. Everybody knew. If you put all your stories together and you put me on top of them, regardless of how far you've gone down the scale, you have mine. So now these things were exposed. And you know what happened? I went into a deep suicidal depression, driven by fear of losing my career, and I got put away into a, uh, well, I come out of the rehab and I, I called up the uh, EAP and told them I was going to kill myself. And told them how, what my plan was. When you tell the police department that you're working for, that you're going to kill yourself, it didn't take too long before there was an unmarked car where I was. They stuck me in the back of the car and put me in a mental institution. And I was there with Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito and all those guys from one floor of the cuckoo's nest and yelling at the chief to put the ball in the basket and, and the whatever. And I was in there and I had 10 shock treatments for the depression. I was told I had to make things. Can you imagine me make things? Occupational therapy? I already had a job. My ego is telling me I was going to get fired from. So I made two pairs of moccasins, a jewelry box and an ashtray. And one of the thoughts was, I have a pretty, a pretty honed gift on arts and crafts. When I come out of here, I'll open up a porno shop, an arts and crafts store next to a porno shop right in this major city. That was one of the thoughts I had. While I was in that hospital, I was trying to hit on some woman that looked like Barbara Streisand. So my sex addiction was never addressed. It wasn't even in the DSM-3 back in those days. There was no such term for it. Many, many, many years later on, I went to a psychiatrist in, uh, in 1998. I was sober a long time. I was sober like 29 years. And I went to a psychiatrist because of depression. And I knew a lot about addictions at that time. I already had gone to school, got a lot of education. I was you know, really on top of my game. And uh, I remember telling this psychiatrist that uh, I, I, I think I have an anxiety disorder. And he told me, no, you're depressed. And I said, no, 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 no. I know all about depression. 
Uh, I know all about that stuff. I have a couple of master's degrees and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and all this kind of stuff. By that time, I was already, I was retired from the department. Um, and he told me, no, uh, no, no, you have, James, you have an effed up brain. That's what he told me. You have an effed up brain. Just looked at me like that and said it that way. Absolutely true. So let me go back. I didn't get fired from the NYPD, believe it or not. The fact that I was in AA now and in recovery saved my job. I got promoted three times after that. I became, I became the commanding officer of the employee assistance program with 11 years of sobriety. And then one day in 1985, a woman walked in and handed me an article on Sexaholics Anonymous that was in the newspaper with the 20 questions. 1985. I took the 20 questions with my door closed very furtively. I got 16 yeses and I nearly died. I wanted to run. I wanted to throw up. A few weeks later, I was in my first SA meeting in Seaford, Long Island. And I stayed for 10 years. But I didn't fully get it because I didn't understand that I had to be willing to stop my sexually destructive thinking and behavior. So I became a relapser. I had five years of squeaky clean knots. I'm not masturbating. I'm not looking at porn. I'm not this. I'm not that. But I was lusting. I was a, a, like a big fish in a little pond in AA, lusting all over the place and desiring to be lusted after. I stayed for 10 years, and in 1995, I got a very high visible job, highly visible position in the addictions field because I had the credentials to do that. Only I was on TV a lot and going into schools and giving lectures and speaking and all kinds of stuff. And I decided I can't be a member of SA and be this visible. I'm always on TV. I'm always this, that. In schools with young people, what would they think of me if they found out it was an SA? So I left. You know what happens to us when we leave, when we leave a recovery program? We never find out what happens to people who who stick around. So little by slowly, I added the porn back in and then the masturbation. And I had what, what you, I would now consider a 24-year lapse, a lapse. It does not get better, folks. My experience was it does not get better. We heard about that today. So I came back. I came back through my own enlightened self-interest. And this is how. I think I have three minutes. This is how. <clears throat> I, um, I was at a wake, a funeral of a fellow that I was also in the same profession that I had took to an essay meeting in 1985. This is 2019. He died suddenly on September 26th of 2019. He had a major heart attack. He was retired from the same police department. He was very, very wealthy, very successful, very, very much so. He had everything he wanted. He was everything. He had all of the things of this world. And you know what they are? Wealth, power, honor, and pleasure. He had them all. And he dropped dead instantly. And I'm sitting at his funeral mass, and a buddy of mine who just got into SA ahead of me leans over to me and says, Jimmy, we know not the hour or the day. It's right from the scriptures. We don't know the hour or the day that we will be standing before the God of our conception. 
that did it, folks. The moment of enlightenment, I came back to SA, and I've been in SA ever since, September 20th, 2019. But I had some difficulty, and I'll end with this. I was in AA 50 years when I came back here. I was sober 50 years. Mr. AA. I come back here, and I wanted to work it the way I work AA. I even guide people through the steps doing step workshops. I've been doing that for 12 years, 13 years. So I came with that bit of an attitude. And then finally, I didn't have a sponsor for a while. I asked uh, one of the fellows on the screen here if he would be my accountability partner. And he told me, no, that's not my experience. And then he told me this interesting little observation. He gave me this observation. You've been working your own program, Jimmy. And I got so pissed off at this guy. But I let it percolate, let it percolate. And then finally, I said to him one day, okay, okay, I, uh, I will do what, I'll do whatever SA tells me. I'll work the steps according to SA. I'll be involved in service. And I do that today. I do that today. So that's, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Uh, I realize this, that the, the miracle is always in the listener, not in the speaker regardless of how eloquent we may be or not eloquent, the miracle is always in the listener. So whatever you got from it, I pray that it helps you in some particular way. So that's that. Thanks for letting me share. All right. Well, thanks, Diego. Thanks for your service. Jimmy, I was was racing to get my hand up first, and I was panicking on my screen trying to find this stupid little raise hand button. Uh, Jimmy, you and I have connected, uh, you know, more over the last few days than we have, but I know that uh, you always mean so much to me uh, when I come into a meeting and I see Jimmy D uh, sitting there just, uh, you know, emanating this this, this light spirit. And uh, I just wanted to share that, you know, it really meant a lot to me in uh, one of the first Long Island, New York meetings that I went to, uh, being from Canada, I'm not as exposed to some of the shares until I, until I reach out to greater fellowship. And uh, when I got into a meeting and you shared uh, your profession, um, that really helped me because you know that we're in the same, we're in the same business. And uh, I was feeling really alone until I heard you share that. Uh, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you uh, for being you. Thank you for your honesty and honest, like through that whole share, my jaw was just dropped to the floor and I could just continue to listen to you. One of the things that really surprised me is to hear you say when you came in to the programs, you were agnostic. Uh, I can't even believe that. I don't even believe you right now. So anyway, Jimmy, <laughs> I love you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. For thank, your you service thank you for doing this. Let me, let me just respond to that, too, because I even asked myself many times this question, you know. Um, I only had five years in, in recovery in the other 12-step program, and I had that powerful, vital spiritual experience that almost like Bill W. had, very similar, very, very similar. I won't, won't go through it here, but I, I really connected with the God of my conception. I was, in fact, reborn in that spirit. And I pursued that for years. I became the second coming of Billy Graham, Elma Gantry, and Jimmy Swaggart all rolled into one. I drove people nuts. Nuts. I was addicted to the Bible and the scriptures. Addicted. Drove my wife crazy. 
cream. My sponsor in AA used to pull his coat up over his head like this when I walked in the room. And he'd say things like this. Jimmy, when are you coming back from the planet Mars? <laughs> and, then, and then, so here's my point. I would then say to myself, I love God. I surrender my life to him every day. I lead prayer communities. I'm involved in that. Why do I still act out with lust? Why? And, I, and two things struck me, and I just want to say this. Today, you remember the keys that Dennis T. talked about? I said to the Lord, take my heart, my mind, my body, my spirit. I give you all my keys. And the Lord said, do you give me all of them, Jimmy? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm holding on to one, Lord. It's a, I want a lust. Uh-uh. Didn't work. It was only now when I came back this time that he chose to lift the obsession to lust. I no longer have the obsession, but I'm tempted. So today I live in steps 10, 11, and 12. Okay, Michael C., and I think Billy K., Michael C. Hey, Jimmy. Good to see you. You too, buddy. Um, I love you, brother. You, uh, you've been an inspiration to me. I remember when I first came into the rooms, like I always say, kicking and screaming, and I saw Jimmy D. up there, and I went, New York, Jimmy D., what's this guy, Mafia? <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, I uh, started listening to your shares, and... Uh, uh, you like I, like I said to my sponsor, when is Jimmy coming on? Because I want to hear him. Um, your Christmas thing with Scrooge, uh, that was amazing. Um, I'm a huge proponent of you. Um, I'm starting to realize, sitting through these uh, great, great shares today, that and and you guys are all hitting home with getting rid of that final key, that lust key. And you know, I was. Saying, you know, I came into SA December the 5th and, you know, I'm sober day. I'm sober. I don't think I've been sober a day since I've been in SA, honestly. Um, uh, that, that final key, I have not given it up to God. And um, the more I see it, the more I hear it. I need help to, uh, to find that spirituality to, uh, to get rid of that key and, I'm just not sure how to get rid of that lust key. And uh, any insight you can give me would be appreciated. Sure. Well, you know, two things come up to me. A little earlier, the, the term compliance versus surrender came up. And there was an op opinion offered that, um, and I understand this from the clinical field, that compliance is nonsense. It's usually very temporary. But you know, there was a, there was a psychiatrist by the name of Thiebaud, Dr. Harry Thiebaud, I think it's Harry, or Henry, one of the two. He was Bill W.'s psychiatrist, and he was the first woman who had long-term sobriety, her psychiatrist, Marty Mann. He wrote a monograph one time called Surrender Versus Compliance. You can get it online. You can, go, you, you can get, Google it, Surrender Versus Compliance by Thiebaud. One of the main things that struck, stuck out in there for me was this. We can't make ourselves surrender. That's almost a spiritual experience. You can't make that happen in you. You can't. But you can comply. You can comply with what you're being told to do by a sponsor, by a group, by people that you get involved with. And surrender will happen for you. It'll come to you. Not when you want it. 
He goes, remember, here's this, here's the other thing. And, I'll, and, and this is, this is how I'll just feed this back to you. I would continue to work the steps, but especially when you get to seven, seven steps says this, we ask him to remove those defects of character in us, that whole malady list of resentments and fear and self-centeredness and blah, 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 all the things we can't remove. We ask him to remove it when they, when they are useful, when they are no longer useful to him, to him or to your fellows. He'll remove it in time. I, I you know, I, I've come a short way in a long time, as my old mentor told me. I've come a short way in a long time. And another old AA, Michael, used to say this all the time. Listen, just like this. You had a little cigar and you'd go like this. Listen, if you're new here, you might as well stick around because you only got to come back. So stick around, Michael. Thanks. Here's my sponsor, folks, Bill Kay. Uh, thank you, Jimmy D, for a wonderful uh, qualification. Uh, Bill Kay here, recovering sex and lustaholic. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, everyone, putting this on. It's been a tremendous day. Um, Jimmy D, two, two questions for you. Um, since you spoke a fair amount about the, uh, the parallel recovery and the intertwining of the recoveries, uh, and since you have just tremendous, tremendous recovery in your other program, congratulations on that. That is exceptionally inspiring. Could you talk a little bit about what you're sort of seeing as some of the structural winners who have that long-term sobriety? What's been the key to holding on to that sobriety? And then maybe talk about some of the challenges you've had in taking that, that long-term sobriety in that program and then sort of surrendering to the, this program. Sorry for the multiple questions, but I feel like that might be helpful. Well, consider that you're a Mensa. You're in Mensa. I can understand how your questions come that way. Um, uh, very challenging. I appreciate them. Um, I guess one of the things that strikes me the most about people that have long-term recovery, both in, I don't care what program, and it doesn't matter to me. Uh, there's a woman that I know in, in OA that's got 27 years of recovery in that program gave away 190 pounds doesn't matter to me uh, but one of the things that it strikes me about this lady and other elders is a sense of humility they have this sense of humility it's it's like one of the major characteristics of somebody that has i think worked worked through the 12 steps this beautiful miraculous design and then they give it away they work with others they they live 10 11 and 12. The other thing I, I learned from somebody else and this, uh, who was an elder and this guy, and, you know, everybody has their own way, their own application. He said this to me a long time ago. Um, I don't work. Once I complete the 12 steps, once I complete the first nine steps, I don't rework those. I know the SIA book has a suggestion that we do that. He says, I don't do that. I live in 10, 11, and 12, and 10 embodies for me steps four through nine. So that, for example, and this, and this can happen to me, and I, this is, feeds into your next question. When these things crop up, it says in step 10, when these things. So then the next the, the question I ask is, what things? The malady, my list of stuff. Right off the bat, my self-centeredness, my selfishness, my elbowing God out, as, uh, as Roy talks about that, you know, my selfishness, my ego, which I can't remove. So when these things crop up, my resentment, 
my fear, my uh, jealousy, envy, that, that bag of crap that we all have. When these things crop up, not if, I'm told to do four things. And people that are elders seem to do this. Number one is, after they recognize it and are aware of it, they ask God to remove it, number one. Number two, they tell somebody. They let the light in on it promptly. Phone call is one way to do it. Transparency, I guess you'd call it, right? Number three, if they've harmed anybody by that, by that you know, boundary violation, when that stuff crops up, that, that malady, if they've harmed anyone, they make amends immediately. And the last thing is they focus their attention on somebody they can help. And it doesn't have to be in a 12-step program. Somebody I can help go outside of myself. That seems to work for them. And that, and I, I, I'm trying to apply that in my own short-term recovery here. I don't know if that answers your question, Bill. Thank you again, Jimmy. Yeah. Somebody has their hand up. Is that Jonathan? Have your hand up? Yeah, everybody's being real nice to you. There's some of us from California that don't understand how you, that you have to be nice to a Brooklyn kid. So I don't really get it. But no, I just, I'm going to stop praying for you. It's on page 152 of the big book. Thank you. I uh, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to ask because I am I'm interested in it. I've only had three months in this program. But there seems to be a lot of people that go out into the void that this program, they're able to graduate. And it's just unfortunate to see some of you guys return, not able to maintain your sobriety. My question to you is, have you ever met somebody who successfully left the program and has maintained his sobriety? Is there, are there people out there? No. Oh, crap. Okay. All right. Thank you. Ralph D. The ego box, you're muted. See your hand up. Hi, my name is Ralph. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Hi, Ralph. Uh, I had a spiritual experience back in 2006 uh, when I got sober in AA. Um, I, uh, I ended up getting married to a woman I shouldn't have, and I had a lot of discouragement. Um, and my relationship with God dwindled big time. Um, what things can I do to increase the strength in that relationship with God? Wow, what a great question. What a great question. Well, uh, let, let me go back to my experience that, that I shared with you. I, too, had that vital spiritual experience that uh, Dr. Carl Jung told Roland he had to have. Roland has it, had to have. Bill W.'s grand sponsor in order to recover. Roland passed it on to Ebby, and Ebby passed it on to, to Bill. I had something like that, too, as I said, with five years in recovery in AA. And my, my abstinence from sexual addiction lasted about three months. 
I stopped. I didn't have. I didn't stop masturbating. I stopped looking at porn. And then I told some guy in AA, this is how you recover from all of that stuff. And I gave him a, a, an incantation to follow. And after I gave him that incantation, that particular type of a, a petition, next thing you know, I'm back acting out again. So uh, that's what happened to me. Now, what do I do today? First thing I do is I generally... Um, I, when I get out of bed, I get on my knees every day. And I, I use this particular type of a, of a, well, I approach the God of my conception, number one, with gratitude right off the bat. I thank him. It's a thank you. Tony Meister Eckhart in the Middle Ages made this comment. He said, if the only prayer you ever, ever learn is thank you, that alone will suffice. So I, I, I address my God in, with gratitude off the bat, right off the bat. For my for everything, I start listing them, naming them, right? And I got a lot of things to be grateful for. Number one. Number two is I use this terminology. I dedicate and consecrate my life to you today. My life, my body, my mind, and my spirit. My spirit. And I ask you to lead me and guide me in the way that I'm supposed to go. And uh and uh direct me with your eye upon me, counsel me. I do that. Who am I to believe that the God of my conception is not going to do that for me if I ask him? He's going to do it because I ask it in his name and, and I believe he does it. And he does do it. He does do it. So it seems what's going on for me is, and, and this is especially so, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful about coming back to SA this time. I don't think anything has increased the depth of my spiritual life more than my coming back to SA. People like you. I needed the fellowship. I didn't have that. I was trying to use an AA fellowship for another addiction and it didn't work. And I would say to guys and, and you know, I would share my lament with guys in AA about my pornography and masturbation. You know what I would hear back? Jimmy, knock it, take it easy. Put the hammer down. Everybody does that. We all do that. What are you kidding me? But I'm an addict. I'm an addict. You know, I could be cynical and say, look, I could throw a stone at an AA meeting and hit a sex addict. It's none of my business. That is none of my business. So that, that's, you know, that's what I do today. I, I, uh, I, I'm grateful for what's happening to me. I'm grateful to be an SA. And I pray every day. And I pray as, as the dentist mentioned, you know, uh, every night. I thank him every night for getting through this day. You know, the Lord's Prayer, some people, we, we close with that in AA. Give us this day, not Thursday, not next Monday, not Sunday. Give us this day. So my, my sobriety ends when I go to sleep. Now i got to start over again the next day. That's what I do. My friend Marcus B., you're up. Thank you so much for co-organizing this and for all of your shares. You're a wise man. Thanks, Jimmy. Great Thank share. You. Grateful to have people like you in the fellowship, great assets to recovery. Um, so I wanted to touch on what you were just talking about. You know, there's three different types of drinkers defined in the AA big book, the moderate drinker, the hard drinker, the real alcoholic. And someone in my home group who's got 35 years in AA, he calls himself a, a real sexaholic who has alcoholism. <laughs> so what is your experience with dual programs? What's your experience with working steps in both programs? And is there a difference for you working the 12 steps in essay? 
Oh my God, is there ever. Uh, I, I personally, you know, I, I believe that steps two through 11 are the same. Uh, only because the word, the, the particular symptom of our addiction is mentioned in the first and 12th step. So you can remove those, you know, put in whatever you want. That's my opinion. I also am a, uh, I am a proponent of, uh, of trying to guide people through the steps rapidly, rapidly. Let them get into recovery rapidly and then ten, live 10, 11, and 12. Someone on here today, I think it was Hal, talked about even if you're relapsing or you're lapsing or you're, you're acting out, start working the steps because you have no power. You know, you don't have the power to, to stop yourself. We don't have any power, you know. Lack of power is our dilemma. And 10 pages later, we're told what the solution is. And it's God, the God of our conception. So what, what happened to me in SA and, I mean, in AA? Well, uh, I guess I wasn't ready. That's simple. I wasn't ready. Again, the story today by Dennis, I guess it was Dennis T, talked about the keys, you know. The keys. I had to give him everything. I had to give him all my keys. And in the sixth step uh, in the big book, it says, are you now ready to have him remove all of those blocks, you know, those things in you that are blocking, that are objectionable to you? And I, in all honesty, I could, I, I said in AA, no. There's one that has two legs, a very, very nice anatomical structure, and she loves me and lusts after me and I lust after her. And I'm not married to her. I'm not willing to give her up. I thought she was the problem. I didn't know it was lust as the driving force. So why I never drank again is beyond me, Marcus. I don't know. I suffered guilt, shame, remorse, crummy feelings, and I kept turning to lust to ameliorate that with prayer. How, how paradoxical is that? With prayer. God, please remove, the, remove this from me. Take this thorn from my flesh. And it was, I wasn't ready until I was ready. Why, how? You can analyze it from now to doomsday. I don't know. You know, the other comment I want to make is this. I am a student of the scriptures, old and new. I've been in that for many, many, many years, as well as the big book, both. One of the things that struck me one day is it took the Israelites 237 years, according to what I've read, for Jacob to get into Egypt. It took 237 years between you know Abraham and and then, and then the the uh, Jacob moved into Egypt because there was a famine in in the Holy Land in Palestine. It was a famine, so he moved all of the Israelites into Egypt. You know how long they were in there? 437 years. They were in there. They became enslaved by a wicked pharaoh who was afraid of their prosperity. And they were growing up into four million people, right? So what did he do? He tried to enslave them and punish them because he was afraid they would go to the enemy if there was a war. And you know how many years it took? So 437 years before God the creator sent Moses in there to set them free. Took me 24 years. I'm not doing bad compared to that. I'm not doing so bad. Thanks. Thanks, Jimmy. All right. I think we might have uh, 
time for one more quick question and answer. If anybody else has a question for Jimmy. All right, I'll ask I have a question. Oh, oh. I have, oh, I'm running. I have I have so I'm <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, one of you. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm counting days. I'm on day 11 and I work in step one. How will you define powerlessness uh, when it comes to sex addiction? The true meaning of powerlessness and that's step one. Great question. L let me give you a, an old time um, metaphor. Bill W, you love using metaphors. Suppose that you, uh, you were constipated and you're being an extreme guy, you probably are because you're in essay. You took a whole box of X-Lax. You swallowed the whole thing. You think you'd be able to stop yourself from having an evacuation? Well, I don't think so. That's on a physical scale. Powerlessness means that my human will has been compromised. One of the greatest gifts I have as a human being is my will, a free will. Once I'm obsessed and I'm, I'm a compulsive, a, a compulsively addicted to something, my free will to not do it is gone. By that measure, I'm powerless. What's unmanageable? The consequences, the negative results, all the crap that happened. That's my unmanageability. But my powerlessness is based on this. I cannot stop from starting. I can stop, but I can't stop from starting. So that's powerless. Anyway, that's it for me. Steve, you wanted to say something before we end, I think, right? Sure. Um, I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, and uh, I, I'll go ahead and, and just say that, you know, to everyone else that Jimmy is my essay sponsor. I'm also a AA member. And, his, and because of Jimmy, your experience with the big book and AA, I was really attracted to that because I've always felt that AA should have taken care of my sex addiction. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I came to SA, or when I came to AA, I realized that uh, that's just where SA started. And, uh, but, you know, um, I'm going to ask, well, even you, you give me this analogy of, um, you know, God is the, God, God is the, is the, the flow. I'm just the pipe. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and when I came to SA, um, I knew I needed a bigger pipe. I, I needed a bigger flow of God in my life to stay sober. Um, in your journey in SA, if there's one thing that you could say would be an area where you want more victory, what would it be? Um, more of a victory over being lusted after. I, I, I'm a fairly highly visible guy in, in AA. And, uh, and as you know, I host a uh, meditation and sharing meeting on it every Thursday on Zoom at 11 o'clock. And by the way, anyone of you folks are uh, certainly willing to come to that 11 o'clock on Zoom on Thursday. There's a lot of women on that. And I'm heterosexual, so there's a lot of women. And I often get texts and emails and stuff like that that are uh, very, very complimentary about me. 
And I like that. I love being lusted after. And it's so easy for my brain to begin to, that effed up brain that I have, to begin to twist some of that into some fantasy that isn't even real. So that's, that's the area that I really want to be open to and sharing that with other people and with my, my God. That's an area I have to be careful of. Where does that come from? The trauma of my life. Many of you had traumas, that poor sense of self, plus my genetics. Addiction reigned supreme, reigned supreme in my family. You know, what it, you know what it was? Food. It killed most of them. Killed most of my family. So anyway, that's the deal, being lusted after. Thank you, Jimmy. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.